Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant family. Good to see you guys here. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to give you a little time to turn there while I announce uh, a 14-day period a journey that I want to invite all of you to join those of us on the staff on of prayer and fasting. Now, outside, right outside, uh, you're going to find a table there with all kinds of information, a guide uh, to kind of help you determine what that is. Uh, Also, if you are subscribing to our online channels, you'll see a message there from me about seven minutes long, kind of giving you a rationale about why we're doing this and why we're doing it now, uh, along with just some rudimentary instruction, particularly if you're young in the faith and you never participated in a church-wide fast before. Uh, Number one, let me tell you, this does not mean that you have to dive into the deep end of the pool. And so if this is your very first time, I would actually not recommend that you launch into 40 days of no food and only water and that that can sometimes only end badly. You know, kind of ease in. Uh, think of a zero. Think of it as kind of a zero entry pool. Even your pastor during these next 14 days is going to be taking one meal out of every day. That's going to be my practice. It typically is uh, when we do this together as a church family, uh, just to take that time and rather than feed my stomach, to seek to feed my soul, to turn my attention, my focus from the physical manifestations, the, 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 the food that's going to keep me alive to a Lord that I need even more than food. And that really is the purpose individually of fasting, but for an entire church to do it together, uh, and you've seen, if you've been around the covenant family for long, you know we do this on occasion. Uh, we don't do it in, in sort of rote repetition, but neither is it random when we choose these times together. It's typically because we're sensing that we're at a critical juncture as a church family, and we need to all together kind of sink our hearts and our souls, even though we'll leave this place and be in different places. And uh, for many of you, you're not going to see each other until the very next Sunday, but your hearts and your minds are in sync and focusing on the Lord. And and we want to take the next 14 days to do that. It's going to culminate uh, on, and you, you'll find these flyers, these handouts, invite cards as well out there in a night of prayer and praise on May the 25th. That's a Wednesday night at 7. So uh, the youth are going to allow us to kind of invade their space and time, and we'll join them in that. And then a breaking of the fast during our unity service on May the 29th. So I look forward to seeing what God is going to do in these next 14 days. I look forward to hearing your personal stories and how God is moving in your life and your soul and and how he's speaking to you and how you are drawing closer to him and how you've learned that this isn't even transactional. I'm not giving up a meal so God's going to give me something else. That's actually Baal worship. You know that, right? Priming the pump so God's going to do something. This isn't about getting something out of God. This is about getting God. This is about getting closer to him. And I am excited to learn where this is going to go over the next 14 days. So I look forward to that with you. A glimpse of heaven. And speaking of a glimpse of heaven, I I would imagine if you've lived long enough and you've had an experience or hopefully many such experiences that you thought to yourself, you know what, this seems a little bit like what heaven would be like. 
You ever been there? He's like, this, this just seems a little bit like what I'm going to experience in heaven. Maybe it was a vacation to an exotic destination that included this breathtaking view that just took your breath away, that reminded you afresh of the majesty of the God who created this planet. I know for me, that's the Grand Canyon, like every single time I've ever been there, including the last time, which was last summer. It was the first time our entire family ever saw it together, and my two younger kids were making fun of Dad for wanting to drive for four hours to see a big hole. Right? That's all right. I can take their ridicule. Totally fine. Because you know what? Every single time I have stood on that prayer, even my wife thinks I'm weird. Like, okay, you, we've been here for a little while. Are you ready to leave now? And I'm just, I'm just in awe at the edge of that precipice. It's just amazing. Maybe you've seen a view like that, or, or maybe it was that same view. Maybe it was just an evening with close friends. Maybe it was around a fire, or you just had a really nice dinner, some really good food, some really good wine, and, and, and everybody's in sync with one another. And you go, wow, gosh, I, I wish work were more like this. I wish my family were more like, I wish my spouse were more like this. I mean, we're all in sync. And, and you, you, you're experiencing in that moment a sense of fellowship that reminds you, but man, there's a day coming when, according to the Bible, this is the way it's going to be all day long, all eternity long. And for me, I tend to think about the kingdom. I tend to think about a slice of heaven in the future when I think about the church synced up together on mission together. It was Dr. David Lee, who's retired from the Baptist Convention of Maryland, Delaware for many years, who taught me from the, some of my first days here doing ministry in the Mid-Atlantic. He said, Joel, but the, probably the most important thing that a denominational leader can do for a group of churches is to keep them on mission together. If for no other reason, then the more you're on mission, the less you fight about stupid stuff. How about that? Yeah, mission goes up, drama goes down. That's just how it works. And when you see the church of the living God synced up together on mission, you get a sense that, man, this is tangible evidence of the kingdom of God. And we know those things are legitimate because Jesus told us in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is among you. It is within you. There's something about the kingdom, even that is described here in the future tense, that is very much present. But then there's the specific way that it's talked about in Revelation 20. That Revelation 20 speaks about the kingdom in a, in a slightly different way. It, it actually doesn't use the, the language of kingdom so much as it uses the language of reign, a, a way that reflects a finality. It's a way that reflects a time when history as we know it is, is consummated and the reign of Jesus becomes a physical and eternal reality. And, and, and the difficulty is that sometimes when we read our Bibles and we see that word kingdom or we see the uh, references to the reign of Christ, it can be difficult to distinguish between the two. Like, like, is he talking about right now? Is he talking about what's within, what's around? Is he talking about what's in the future? And so scholars and theologians, even as they disagree, ha have come up with what my daddy used to call a $10 phrase to describe this distinction. They call it inaugurated eschatology. All right. What does that mean? Inaugurated eschatology. It means there's a sense in which the kingdom is now, and there's another sense in which the kingdom is not yet. Just think with me for a moment about an inauguration. A president takes an oath of office, a governor takes an oath of office, and, and what happened? Well, their, their reign, so to speak, their administration is inaugurated but everything they promised you in the campaign hasn't fully come to pass yet, has it? For that matter, will it ever, right? 
Yeah, I'm going to give everybody a free unicorn, right? Here's, here's how it's going to go. And, and so what, what's happened is you've got a moment in which, okay, they're in power, their administration has begun, but all the promises of that administration have not yet been realized. That's the way I want you to think about this, this concept of inaugurated eschatology because the kingdom doesn't begin in the future. It already began in the past. Jesus told us that. It began with his ascension. He said in Matthew 28, 19, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. All right? It, that's true right now. Okay? The king reigns right now. But then there's another sense in which all of the promises of his reign have not yet come. And what you and I feel when we see God working among us and when we feel or see with our senses a, a taste of that coming kingdom, or maybe you're just watching some breathtaking view and you're reminded of the majesty of this king, from our place in human history, the kingdom has merely been inaugurated. And that brings us today to one of the most debated texts around Jesus' second coming, Revelation chapter 20. Scholars and students around the world who would be otherwise in lockstep on things like the authority of Scripture, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, have come to some pretty radically different understandings about how we in the 21st century should understand this text, which was written 20 centuries earlier. And so what I want to do this morning with you is break this message up into two parts. Number one, I want to give you the broad spectrum, as unbiased as I can, of the three primary ways that this text has been understood by people, all of whom love Jesus, all of whom love his word. And then what I want to do is I want to come back and deal with what we can know. So there's some things that, that there's not really consensus on within the body. What does this mean? What do these thousand years mean? When will it happen? Is it already happening? How will it happen? And then we want to conclude with what we can know. All right, what is, what is John really revealing to us here? And so I want to start with the three ways that believers have approached this text, and those three approaches have been given names, thankfully. So we'll start with, with what's called the amillennial view. Ah, that, 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 that A kind of prefix in Greek is a negated term. So amillennium literally means no Millennium. Now, that doesn't mean that an amillennialist doesn't believe that Revelation 20 is true, that they don't believe that it's God's Word. Here's what it means. They don't believe that it is a literal or future event that is coming. They, in fact, believe it is a present tense reality that began with the ascension of Jesus into heaven and will end with his second coming. All right? My friend David Platt, who's a pastor at McLean Bible Church, this is his position. Any of you guys who may listen to Matt Chandler, very popular preacher uh, on podcast out of Dallas-Fort Worth, very faithful brother in Christ, this is what he would tell you is his position. And if you ask an amillennialist, hey, when is the millennium, they're going to say, you're standing in it right now. You say, well, how in the world could that be? And they're going to they're point back to a text I just quoted to you. In Matthew 28, 19, even before the Great Commission and before he ascended, he said, all authority in heaven and on the earth belongs to me. Not future tense, present tense. Okay? And so they're going to go, all right, so we're already kind of in the middle of this. That's our millennialism. Post-millennialism which is held by a, a number of folks. My, one of my fathers in the ministry, Bob Roberts, is a, is a post-millennialist, believes that the church through its teaching and preaching is going to assume greater importance. 
It's going to solve many of mankind's issues. It's going to usher in a long period of peace before the return of Jesus. In, in other words, they're not saying that Jesus' return isn't important. They're saying that Jesus' return will punctuate a period in which the church, in the power of the same Jesus who said to his church, I give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so the, the church is going to usher in this long period of peace and prosperity, and they would admit, yeah, I know it doesn't feel like it right now, but we have faith that that moment is coming, and it will be punctuated with the return of Jesus, hence the, the prefix post, as in after the millennium, Jesus will return. So there's amillennialism, postmillennialism, and then finally, premillennialism. Jesus returns in power and glory, and he does so before the millennium, and when he returns, he strips Satan of what remaining power he has, binds him to the point of impotency, sets up the physical manifestation of his kingdom on earth. And that is your pastor's tentative position. You're like, tentative? Yeah. Some days, depending on what mood I'm in when I get out of bed, what pastor, I'm serious. Like, like it's my tentative. It's kind of where I'm at right now, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But it's kind of funny. Even in the preparation in bringing this series to you, I, I have admitted to some of my mill and my post-mill brothers and colleagues, especially my academic colleagues, hey, I'm, I'm starting to wonder here. Maybe, maybe you guys have a point. And of course, especially my millennial brothers are like, come on in. The water's fine, right? But it, but it haven't quite been convinced yet to depart from, from what I believed essentially since the beginning of my ministry. Now, why do I cover all that? Well, because if you're teaching the Bible, you have to do your homework and study, okay? One famous preacher was actually asked by a young aspiring seminarian, what is the secret to powerful Holy Spirit anointed preaching? And that preacher didn't blink. He said, you keep your butt in the seat behind the desk until the work is done. You got to study. You got to study. And eventually, you got to land somewhere. So I, I tell you this for full disclosure. Your pastor, moving forward, looking at this, is using a premillennial framework for how to understand this passage. I find that approach to be the wisest. I find it to be most in sync uh, to understanding what John is saying here, and I'll point to a few reasons why as we move through the text together. It's one of those, again, this is one of those areas. You don't have to agree with me. Not even all of our leadership here would agree with their pastor on this. But, but I want to point out this because the issue here isn't being right. John did not write these words to a first century church suffering under the thumb of a level of persecution that would be unimaginable to us today so they could figure everything out. John did not write these words and the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, did not inspire these words so that you and I could be right. He did it so we could be ready. It is time to be ready for the coming of Jesus. You don't have to agree with me to be ready for this moment, okay? Godly people who love Jesus look at this text through a different framework. They are my brothers and sisters. Not only are they not my enemy, they are not even my opponent. And in the end, the application is the same. It's not about the right interpretation. The most important question is, how do we live in light of what we can know from this passage? And I want to tell you, in spite of the absence of consensus among the global church, there are some things we can know. Let me tell you what those things are. The first one is this, that before the kingdom, all right, whether you believe we're in it right now, 
whether you believe it's coming to you, one of the things we are taught with abundant clarity is before that moment is inaugurated, Satan is bound. Look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. I, every time I read this text, I'm reminded of something that Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 19, and, and not just to Peter, but through Peter to the rest of those of us who are part of the body of Christ. He said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, to the degree that you accurately represent me and who I am. You better not get off this issue of who God is, who Jesus is. You start defining me wrongly, you've lost the power. All right, this is why accurate understanding of God's word is paramount, right? Because I can't romance my wife tonight by, by complimenting her blonde hair and blue eyes. That won't go well for me. No matter how passionate I am, I'm wrong, okay? Transpose that foolishness up into God. Well, doctrine really doesn't matter. Doctrine is everything because it tells us who God is. And when God reveals himself to us, we don't get to change that picture. Jesus says, to the degree that you get that right, to the degree that you're faithful in proclaiming my gospel, there is a binding and loosing authority that belongs, not necessarily to individuals, but to the corporate body that is the church, which means that every time our, our work results in a converted soul or a newly planted church or, or some domain of society that's made better by our faithful presence, you and I in that moment are providing a glimpse of a day that is coming when Jesus will reign and these problems will be no more. And that's our calling in this world, when the kingdom will be fully loosed, when Satan will be fully bound. Now, again, my millennial brothers and sisters believe we're in this period now. Jesus' ascension, he's conferred his divine authority to us. He reigns right now, therefore we reign right now. Well, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think that's true. And I have to admit, I, I find it attractive. For one thing, it's simple. It doesn't leave questions unanswered the way I will admit that my own position does. Our, our post-millennial brothers and sisters believe that our binding and loosing work will eventually bring that reality into existence. Man, I, I wish I could be that positive that we could do that without the physical presence of Jesus on the planet. But, but, but here's why I think those are not the right way to look at this. Primarily, it's, it's for this reason. This binding that's being described here it is so effective as to prevent our enemy from deceiving the nations any longer. Now, I look around and I see the forward progress of God's church. I see the explosion, particularly once you get outside of the West, of the kingdom of God globally. But I also have to be real and tell you that I also see an awful lot of deception. An awful lot of deception. And so my best understanding here is that John is describing an event that is, first of all, still in our future, and secondly, can only be brought about by the Lord himself. We carry his authority, but I don't believe this is a moment we can bring on our own. 
I, I, I believe Jesus has to come and manifest. I mean, we can manifest it powerfully. I don't believe we're capable of bringing the whole thing. Now, here's the good news, whether you agree with me or not on that. This moment will signify the defeat of a mammoth spiritual power. Remember how Satan's described in Revelation? The dragon, the ancient serpent, the serpent from the garden, the dragon that's described back in, in, in Revelation chapter 12. It says his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. This is the, this is the immensity of the kind of power that you and I have been fighting since the moment we believe. This is according to every place else in Revelation, the ultimate source of every temptation you have ever faced. The ultimate origin of every struggle that has met you in life. The ultimate genesis of every personal threat against you. Imagine looking at the night sky and seeing a dragon so large that is a mere swing of his tail takes out a third of the lights in the night sky. That's an apocalyptic vision of a level of evil that cannot be overcome except by the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's being described here. And it is an apocalyptic picture of what Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us literally is true about our enemy. Enemy, He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around. You, you know what this text is telling us? There is coming a day on the basis of Jesus' own death and resurrection that through his angelic representative, this immense evil will be bound to the point of impotence and sealed up to the point of invisibility. The age of 1 Peter 5 is coming to an end. That's the promise. So, so, so here's the first thing I think you need to know about the millennial kingdom. Right. When, when this period of history begins, we will experience what no other human being on the planet experienced before our first parents did. Imagine with me a world with no enemy to oppose us. A world with no deceiver to lie to us. A world with no animate evil that seeks to destroy us. Anybody remember who Flip Wilson was? What was his famous saying? There you go. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Well, here, all due respect to Flip Wilson, you can't blame the devil for your choices. But you can recognize his influence on those choices. You can recognize, I recognize his influence in our lives. I see his influence in, his, in this world. I saw it this weekend when conspiratorial racial hatred motivated a guy to drive hours to a market so that he could kill some of our brothers and sisters of color. That's just evil. How else do you explain that except it's just satanic? It's wicked. This world, there's still so much darkness in this world. That influence with the full rival of God's kingdom will completely disappear. So here's the question. What are we doing with our lives, with our professions, with our skills? For those of you that just a couple weeks ago were in our Discover class, I think there were about 15 of you in that class, becoming part, you know, taking your first step to become part of the covenant family. And I told you covenant is not about the pastors. We're, we're, not, we're not stars of the show. We're the midwives. 
right? Our job is to produce within you, and that includes your, your talents, your skills, your professions. God has called. Listen, if you're an engineer, if you're a physician, if you're a carpenter, whatever you do for a living, if you're a teacher, if you work in our hospital system, God has called you to that work in no less a redemptive way than he's called me to preach the gospel. How is the kingdom being manifest through that work? What kind of difference are you making? When you hit your knees in the morning and you get ready to go to work, or tomorrow night if you work in the graveyard shift, and you, is, is this part of your prayer? Not just God help me make it through the day, God help me to get through the day with all these annoying coworkers. God, would you help me deal with this stupid boss? God, would you, but God, would you bring a manifestation of the kingdom that is coming in what I do today? Because my field belongs to you. My domain of existence belongs to you. You realize that, right? The medical system belongs to Jesus. The education system belongs to Jesus. The agriculture and water systems belong to Jesus. Right now. Boy, folks don't act like it. It's irrelevant what people act like. Have you read this? He's not waiting to become anybody's king. It may seem like it's not true, but it just seems that way. And one day, we're going to see it for real. Because at the start of this moment, Satan will be bound. Secondly, during the kingdom, the saints will reign. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, now so much of this is connected very, very closely to things that we've already looked at that we just simply don't have time to, to unpack again today. But I'll reference you back to, to two passages, Revelation chapter 6 and, and Revelation chapter 13. Those are the groups that are identified there, those that are beheaded, the souls under the altar when that seal is broken, they cry out, how long, O Lord? Uh, and, and then Revelation 13, those that refuse to take the mark of the beast. They're not going to be marked with this world. They're not going to lust for the power that is controlling them. They're not going to try to pull the levers of culture. They're not going to be enticed by that. They're not going to be seduced by it. And the result is they're persecuted for it. And John sees here the saints of the persecuted church. They were beheaded. Now, there's scholars that believe that is literal of everybody in this vision and others who think that beheaded just is a figurative way of describing any kind of execution. Wherever you fall on that, this is true. Once you lose your head, you are most decidedly dead. There's no coming back from decapitation. That is definitely an execution. And they are killed specifically for their refusal to worship anyone other than the Lord their God. Again, I'm not going to be marked by the beast or his image. And, and what we see here is the fulfillment of what happens with those people who've been described earlier. John starts to reveal a sharp division 
even during this period of time, most of the dead, those that have passed away before this moment comes, they stay dead. Their fate gets described later in the book. But for the faithful, those who persevered by, by, by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, they came to life, right? They're brought back to life at the beginning of this period. You know, you remember what Jesus promised us? Because I live, you will live also. This is the final and ultimate keeping of that promise. But it comes after an awfully hard life. You know, it's probably, I, I'm not so worried about the lies in our culture, the lies of the world. Listen, no, nobody's going to heaven or hell based on what Deepak Chopra believes about Jesus. Okay, I, that, people get upset about stuff. I'm like, it, it's the world. Would you expect people who aren't Christian to act like they're Christian? Like, I, I'm concerned with the lies the church tells. Because those are eternally deadly. And one of the biggest lies I hear coming out of the church, especially in the West, is that one of the primary reasons you come to Jesus is so that you can be a winner. So that you can be rich. So that your sex life can get better. So that your marriage can get better. So that your kid. Now, is it generally true that if you put biblical principles into practice in your life, that you'll generally experience what sociologists call lift? Of course it is. Of course it is. But you don't come to Jesus to get money, prosperity, sex, marriage, pleasure, your own agenda. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. And sometimes that results in you being a pro athlete like a Tim Tebow who gets to say, hey, Jesus gets the glory for everything. You know, and we rejoice in that. But that's not going to be everybody's story. In fact, we're told in Scripture that most people are going to have a story of a hard life. All right? Money, power, popularity, fame, you'll always have your life together. We're reminded of two things here that reveal that satanic lie for what it really is. Number one, those who reign in the future are those who suffer in the present. You're like, this, this isn't very good news. It's the truth. Wait a minute, Pastor, are you telling me that the Christian life isn't this wonderful? No, it is wonderful. It is glory. Well, wait a minute. I always, I always kind of equated glorious and wonderful and with, with having enough money and having, like, you're, you're telling me that I might not always have it. No, sometimes life's going to suck. Sometimes it's going to be bad. Sometimes you're going to be called to suffer but it's worth it. It's worth it. We are so, I, I read Acts chapter five where they're literally beaten for their witness. And the end of that story says, they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer. And I look at the way the Western church acts sometimes, I go, we are such babies. And I don't say that. I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to say you don't have to live like that. Like you're always, if I don't get my way, if everything doesn't work out, if anybody, that's you building your own little fiefdom. You better burn that thing down. What do we see here? Those who reign in the future are willing to suffer in the present. We have, especially in the West, 
a woefully underdeveloped theology of suffering. And we miss the greatest blessing because of that. The greatest blessing. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. And it's why most people, even in churches, won't follow him. I know this is hard truth this morning, but it is the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 7, what did Jesus remind us of? Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many are they that walk on it. Narrow, straight is the gate that leads to life, and few will be they that find it. I pray for you often. Because on the basis of texts like that, I frankly don't know how many of you I'm going to see in heaven. And I pray for your souls. I pray for your souls. And if that's you, here's what you need to hear. That straight path is worth it. It's worth it. Because this is the second thing we learn here. Comparatively, the reward that is coming is far greater than anything you could possibly endure for the sake of Jesus here. And John's not the first to tell us this. Look at this passage in, in, from Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light, momentary affliction. It, whoa, this guy went to prison. This guy got beat. This guy ultimately had his head cut off, as far as we know. Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, see, when we talk about belief as Christians, when we talk about faith, this is what we're talking. Do you believe that's true? And does it inform the way you look at the world? Does it inform the level of your service to others as we look not to the things that are seen not, not whether or not I'm considered by culture to be a winner, but the things that are unseen or the things that are, are seen or transient. Yeah, we love Tebow. I, I love him. I love, I, I love that young man. I love his heart for God, but yet one day he's going to get old and then he's going to die. That's going to happen to me. That's going to happen to you. I saw that at our son's graduation commencement service, a commencement speaker got up. His first words to these freshly minted graduates was, all of you are going to die. <laughs> kind of an unconventional commencement speech. But it's true. It's true. At any point in time that I stand up here, I, I can tell you without knowing the individual stories, just because law of averages there's not been a single time I have ever stood up here, or for that matter, stood in any place where I've proclaimed the gospel, where I was not talking to somebody who's suffering. Every single time. Sickness, family struggle, family dysfunction, marriage about to break apart, children that are breaking your heart, blended family drama that just you can't seem to solve. There's death, there's loss, and in the middle of that, sometimes you even get angry, and you might understandably look at heaven and go, why? Why? Maybe you even get angry with the Lord. Let me tell you something. His shoulders are broad enough to handle whatever you throw at him. Don't be afraid to come to him with that. But for the sake of your soul, please don't leave him. 
Don't walk away. Don't walk away. You hang on, even if you're mad at him, believe him. You're like, whoa, is that, can I be mad? Can I be mad at God? Can I be, wait, what do you think the sisters of Lazarus were feeling when he waits until the man dies before he gets there? And he's grieving as well. What does he hear? First words out of that woman's mouth. Where you been? Can that coexist with? I believe you are the resurrection and the life. I believe it can. According to that story, just don't leave him. Believe that a day is coming not only when this suffering is going to end, but the reign will begin. You stay faithful. One day you will reign. Blessed are you, partaker, in the first resurrection. Satan will be bound and the saints will reign. And then finally, after the kingdom, Satan will be defeated. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. I don't know about you, but just reading that, I have questions that I can't answer. All right, so you're welcome. And, and, and we'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, so here's my first question. He's bound to the point of impetus. He's sealed up to the point of invisibility. We're experiencing a world that nobody's ever experienced before. No deception. No, like, why are you releasing him? I, I don't. I don't have a final answer to this question. It is admittedly one of the problems with the premillennial viewpoint. We don't have an answer to that. We, we don't know. But my best understanding is that Satan will be allowed to further deceive and mislead the nations one final time. But while I have no final answer for it, I will tell you this is not the first time that the Lord has allowed something like this in Scripture. There are two things that that remind me of a moment like this. The first place is in the, just the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. What happens with Pharaoh? What, what does he say about Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9? I raised you up so that I can kill you. I allowed you enough rope. And eventually, I hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he will rebel and my wrath on him and his nation is stored up. You ever wonder why 10 plagues? I've always wondered that. Because I'm a like, like when I go to the doctor, like COVID finally hit our house two weeks ago. And so, so here's my thing. I just, I want to get through it. That's what I want to do. Because I got stuff to do. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I just, I got stuff to do. So what, what do I need? What do I need? I had a horrible ear infection about 10 years ago, came back from the Middle East, and, and my doctor kept playing footsie with it, right? Let's try a little penicillin. Well, let's try, and I'm like, put a shot in my rear end. I want this done, right? I got stuff to do, right? So when I look at a text like the Ten Commandments, like, like the Ten Plagues, I'm like, we just, you're God. You know what's coming. You know you're going to have to kill his kid in order to make this happen. Kill firstborn. Let's get this over with. Right? Why? Why make an entire nation suffer? Why would you? Well, God actually answers that question. 
It is so that my wrath with every act of rebellion of this leader of what was then the most powerful nation on the earth will be stored up against him. My justification for drowning him only gets stronger. And I aim to get glory over Pharaoh, over his armies, over all of my enemies, so that the people of the world will know there is a God in Israel. That's why it happened. And then there's this other place that's so frightening to me. It's in Romans 1 and 2, where three times I see these four words that I, I consider to be among the most frightening in the entire Bible. It says, God gave them over. Because of your hard heart, like a Pharaoh, your stubbornness, your retrenchment, your doubling down, your blame shifting, your whatever, refusing to own your sin, you are storing up wrath against yourself. And sometimes you just continue to, people, they, they rebel against God to a point where he just gives them what they want. And from that moment, he's keeping score. Waiting for the day when everything gets revealed and he sends you to hell. And what we see happening here is that kind of action and reaction on a global scale. Everyone who has refused to repent, John tells us, will be like Gog and Magog. Those two were referenced in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the enemies of Israel who were told that fire would rain down on them for their opposition to God's people. Admittedly, that's another tricky passage. We really don't have time to unpack Ezekiel today. But if you're interested in going deeper in that, the best research I've found on this is from the Old Testament scholar Lamar Cooper, who teaches at Criswell College in Dallas. His work on Ezekiel is among the most thorough I've ever seen of an evangelical. He provides seven possible interpretations for that battle. It's highly complicated. But, but here's what I think we can conclude with some certainty. In the end, there will be rulers and, and groups who will follow those rulers, and they will oppose God and his people, and they're going to galvanize, and they're going to mobilize, and they're going to march in solidarity against the Lord and his elect. But verse 9 tells us there will be no battle. Are we locking and loading? No. No. Look at verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. You get that picture? I hear paranoid Christians all the time with ammo and canned goods in their basement. Now, let me say something here. I made some snide remark about that months ago, and I had a guy come to me, and you know, he said, Pastor, look, I, I believe I'm supposed to have peace with my neighbors. I love Jesus. I'm looking to him. I'm not counting on him. Like, I, I, I understand that revelation isn't supposed to make me a prepper. It's supposed to make me a disciple. That, that said, I got some stuff in the basement, right? And I own guns. And, I'm, and, and you know what I told him? I said, you're fine. You're fine. I know where I live. West by God, Virginia. I know, I know what some of y'all got. It's, there's no sin in that unless that's what you're counting on. See, this, this is the, the aim of this book is not to make you a prepper. It's to make you a disciple. It's to make you a disciple. And the number of believers are like, oh my God, what's going to happen? The world is falling apart. We got to get ready for what exactly? For what? You're missing the point. You're missing the point. 
There is nothing coming at you that God will not all by himself ultimately put a stop to when he gets ready. You need to believe his words to Moses in Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. That might govern what some of us put on social media. Ouch. The Lord will fight for you. You might just need to hush. Hush. And you know what you do out of that? You Wait a minute, I should do something. Yeah, you should. You should do something. 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. Lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You want to be ready for what's coming? You be faithful to Jesus. You live with the confidence that the Lord will balance the books and defeat our enemy. Now, what, what's all this mean? Let me tell you three things primarily. This is good news, by the way. I know there's some hard stuff that I've said today. I know God's word has said some hard But ultimately, I, I pray that your soul is, is filled this morning before you leave with good news, threefold good news. Here's the first one. You ready for this? Jesus is not waiting to become king. He already is. All right, this, this goes back to, again, I'm, I'm coming at most of this, as I shared with you openly with it, from a premillennial position, but the, the premillennial position has some weaknesses in it. It can be overly pessimistic in its extreme forms. It neglects what Scripture teaches about the power of the gospel, not just to transform hearts, but, but even change whole swaths of society, not, not because we're waiting on the kingdom, but, but because that kingdom will be manifest and revealed and, and made real. Okay, let, let, me, let me tell you why that's important. If Jesus is not waiting to be king, then you and I are not waiting to reign. There's a manifestation of that that I think comes in the future. But you don't have to wait until then to live like a victor. You, you see how this, the, these are suffering people. Again, these aren't winners Nobody in Rome looked at the first century church and said, oh my gosh, I aspire to be just like them. Nobody said that. There were no Zig Ziglers in the first century. Some of y'all don't know who Zig was. That's a pity. He's a really good guy, right? But, but not everybody's life was supposed to turn out like his. And, and these, these people living in the first, their life didn't turn out like this. What is it? You see how this frees you from it? Like, I, I don't have to have a certain amount of money. I don't have to be viewed by society in a certain way. I, I don't have to. I, I need to be faithful to Jesus, and I will live. Like, I, I'm not waiting to live in victory until I get more money or until my marriage gets better. I'm living in victory right now because Jesus is king right now. Daryl Johnson, who wrote one of the commentaries I've commended to you outside, said millennial madness is made manageable by focusing on the millennial man. He is king. Are you living like it? Do you live like it? Here's the corollary. Jesus isn't waiting on to be king. He's king right now. Your enemy, Satan, contrary to even what some gospel songs would tell you, is not alive and well. He's alive. He's alive. But he is mortally sick. And he knows it. And it is only a matter of time. Boy, it sure seems like there's a lot of darkness out there. There is a, 
There is a lot of darkness. Imagine what it would be like if Satan were still the way he were prior to the crucifixion when, according to Paul in Colossians, he was stripped. He is mortally sick. And he is ultimately, again, just a matter of time before he is bound and thrown into the lake of fire. Mark's gospel put it this way, Jesus' own words. He said, but no man, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. I want to tell you from the time of Jesus to the present, that is our reality right now. Is he bound to the point that I I see him in Revelation 20 being bound? I don't believe so. Is he bound? Yes. Is he limited? Yep. Is he on a short leash? Oh, yeah. Always has been. Can he do anything without the permission of his creator and, and, and our redeemer but his condemner? No. No. So there's coming a day when he's going to ultimately be bound. But even now, he's like a strong man sitting, gagged and bound up, hands and feet, in a chair while you and I go into his house and plunder it and take back what rightfully belongs to Jesus. That is the mission of the church. That's the mission. And you don't, you don't, you don't do that the way the world does it. You do it the way we're going to encourage you to do it in the next 14 days. On your knees before the throne of God, giving up a meal or two or whatever the Lord leads you to give up during that period. God, I need you more than I need food. God, I need you more than I need to binge on this Netflix show. God, I need you more than I need my gaming system. God, I need you more than I, whatever it is, right? And we're going to focus on that time together. This is spiritual warfare. You stay on your knees and you do what is righteous and you live in the truth and you live a godly and a quiet life and you wait on the king to fight your battles for you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Have you read some of the stories of his retribution. You should not be angry or hate-filled toward those who would be your adversary. You should pity them. You should pray for their souls. Here's the third thing. The gospel changes everything. See, all this got inaugurated with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And I am just crazy enough to believe all of that is enough. It's enough. Now, the corollary to faithfulness is found a few verses later. Look at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you carry nothing else away with you today about this passage, carry this away. And please, for the sake of your soul, don't ever forget it. This period of history reveals to you and me more clearly than any other passage of Scripture that there are two and only two choices. You can either be a beneficiary of the first resurrection or you can be the object of the second death. You can be faithful to Jesus and occupy a throne or you can rebel against him and be judged from a great white throne. There's no third direction. None. Jesus is king. And here's the thing about kings. They come to reign. They come to reign. Let me tell you something about this reigning king, though. He is the most sovereign. I love what 
what, what Tim Keller says about the gospel. The first thing you need to understand about the gospel is it teaches you that you are far more sinful and more separated from God than you ever dared fear. And there is a king who's coming to judge your sin. But the other thing you need to understand about the gospel is that you are far more loved than you ever imagined. This sovereign king, he's one of the most benevolent rulers you have ever known. And he proved that benevolence to you and me. Listen, Jesus doesn't have to do anything else for me to demonstrate his love for me. He's already hung between heaven and earth for my sins and yours. And if you turn from your sins today, you put your faith in him, he will invite you, well, to suffer as he did. Look at his life. Look at the way he suffered. And remember his words, that a servant is not above his master. It's not always an easy life, but it, it can be perpetually a joy-filled life, and eventually you will reign with him. There is no refuge from this king. He's coming. Everybody in the sound of my voice, everybody in this room, everybody that has ever lived, everybody that ever will live will reckon with Jesus. He is the center and circumference of all reality. There's no escaping that day. But there is refuge in him. He provides it for you, for everybody who turns from their sin and who believes. Would you bow with me? I, I just want to ask you today, do you know him? Do you know him? I, I'm not asking if you've signed a membership card or prayed some prefabricated prayer or even if you've been baptized. I'm asking if by the power of the Holy Spirit, this God has been revealed to you and you have been so awestruck by him that you did what scripture commands. You repented of your sins. You put your faith in him and believed. And you've had your heart and your life transformed and you read 1 John, the whole letter, and you find your reflection there. Like, yep, that's me. And it's only me by the grace of God. Let me tell you something. Anything less than that, you are not converted according to the word of God but you can be. You can be today. And so there are men and women, and I want to ask them actually now, elders, deacons, if you just go ahead and take positions under these four crosses in the room, and they wait, I wait today to share with you what it means to follow this king, to give your life over to him, to have your sins forgiven, to, to live a life of joy that is not indexed to anything in this world. That's his promise to you, along with a perpetual reign after this world. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit this morning saturates this place and the hearts and the minds of these people. Lord, your word also teaches that every word that just came out of my mouth is useless without the power of your Holy Spirit. But that same word tells me that your word is always empowered by your spirit and it never returns void. And so, Father, we anchor ourselves in that promise today. And we ask you, we ask you and you alone to convert hearts, minds, and souls. And ready us all for that moment with that which is already reality. You are king. You are sovereign. Will be made manifest on this earth. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the hope of the gospel and for the end toward which we are all headed who belong to Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.
Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.